So we reach the part in the story when uh, David comes onto the scene. We know a lot about David because we sing about him at Christmas time. It was the town of David and the line of David and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, But rather than look forward this morning, because there will be opportunity to do that, I want us to see how David, sitting where he does, taking pride of place, as it were, in the Old Testament, picks up threads and themes that have been weaving their way through right from the beginning. In the end, it's one book, isn't it? In the end, it was inspired by one God to tell one story about his purpose for one humanity. And and so come back with me quickly, albeit, because we've done this in a lot more detail earlier on in our series, but come back with me to Genesis just for a moment. And remember that verse where the pace of chapter 1 slows right down. God's been speaking things into being. And if you were here a couple of Sundays ago in the evening, uh, the speed of light and, uh, uh, and all that we looked at about the way God spoke and it was, it was bang and bang and bang and bang, and out of the chaos came this order. Then the pace slows right down. And he stoops on the ground, and he begins to form man, men and women in his image. And both chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis that tell the story of creation and our creation in particular offer us two primary things that God was giving us when he created us. The first thing God was giving us was relationship. Let us make man in our image. A relational God created us to be like him in relationship to him and also to one another. The first thing God gave us was relationship. And then the second thing God gave us, out of that new relationship with him and with one another, let us give them a task. Let us enable them to take responsibility. So we've been given this relationship to share with God and to share with one another and to use that relationship to take responsibility for stewarding, for looking after, for representing the king in his kingdom. Let them rule on our behalf. Let them express our dominion and our reign, God said, of human beings. So we're called into relationship and we're called to take responsibility. And it was both of those things that got totally twisted and soiled and broken and damaged uh, when we fell. We turned our back on God, it messed up the relationship, and it messed up our ability equally to take responsibility for the world in which we live. Salvation is God rescuing us completely from the effects of what went wrong. It's not just God rescuing us back into relationship with him, but God rescuing us for him to take responsibility for him in our world. What was I saved for? Uh, We might say I was saved for heaven and all of that. Well, that might be true in part, but I was saved for God's purpose. And that's part of what it means to live for him as part of his rescued people. No surprise then, that once we moved through Genesis, when we got to Abraham, we were introduced to the whole relationship restored with the theme of covenant. 
You may remember that. And then no surprise, after Abraham, we're introduced to the life of Joseph, which was a man who rose to take responsibility to extend God's kingdom at a particular time. Both covenant and kingdom. Relationship and responsibility. And these themes, as we've said before, weave their way right the way through the Bible. So, for example, when Jesus called, uh, called the first disciples, he called them firstly to, to be with him, to be in relationship with him. That's where it begins. That's how it, uh, that's, everything starts there. Come and be with me. And then he sent them out to take responsibility for what they've discovered because they were in relationship with him. Uh, When we think about the words that Jesus left us, that there are two key moments we recognize through his life. The first is that great commandment that's been repeated down through the ages, which was lifted out of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's about relationship. And then the second thing Jesus uh, left us, the great commission, go and make disciples. Go and enable other people to meet this living God and so be transformed as you have been transformed and teach them to live obeying, extending the kingdom in greater measure every day. Responsibility. And so it's there again and again as we weave our way through the Bible. And these aren't new things to us as we talk about the staircase, uh, the steps, It's all about mission, the words that we use, and maturity or maturity and mission, covenant, kingdom, relationship, responsibility. Now, what's this got to do with David? Well, we've gone through a very sort of uh, difficult time in Israel's history through the period of the judges and all of that, and then Samuel came on the scene, then Saul we looked at last week, and then David arrives. What's about to begin with the life of David is arguably the greatest moment in Israel's history. It is the moment in Israel's history when the light of God's witness shone brighter than at any other time. It is a moment in Israel's history when God's kingdom rule was extended further than it would ever be extended before Jesus came back. It peaked, surely, uh, with Solomon, David's son, but the whole momentum of this growth took place through the life of David. So we get to this middle part of the Old Testament that is, if you like, Israel at its best. It's not all good, but it's as good as it's going to be. And we see God blessing them. We see them being able to be a blessing in ways they hadn't been able to achieve hitherto. And we're left asking the question, how come? How come this moment in time is their greatest moment? What are the ingredients? What's the context? What are the lessons for us to draw? Why is it that through this man, David, things came together in a way they hadn't come together before and they wouldn't come together afterwards? It left the people with a longing. We're longing for someone and they would look back to the days of David and say, we're longing for someone like David. And so when they started to talk about the Messiah coming, it was one like David who would come. And then because of the prophecies that they had, they began to believe that someone greater than David would come. And it was almost too good to be true. So what was it? Well, it's covenant and kingdom. In the life of David, we see weaved together, more than any other Old Testament character, these two major themes. 
Understanding what it is to be in relationship with God, covenant. Understanding what it means to take responsibility for God, kingdom. And so this man who was uniquely in relationship with God took responsibility in a unique way for God and so the kingdom extended. And as we look into our own situation, into our own day, and we long for the kingdom to be extended, we long for the witness of God to be greater than it has been, we long for the borders of God's rule and reign to be pushed even further back, don't we? We look back to David and begin to see the pattern that is of no surprise to the Bible reader because it was there in Genesis 1, we through Genesis, and in fact we can weave it right the way through up until now, the time of David. So if we look at the call of David with me just for a moment, uh, and we begin to see how David was uh, the embodiment of both covenant and kingdom the call of David. We're in chapter 16 of uh, 1 Samuel. And uh, you may know the story of how uh, Samuel called David to be the king. Anointing David, not making him king at that particular moment, but anointing him as a sign that he was God's chosen to be king and that one day that would come to uh, fruition. So Samuel, uh, under God's direction, goes to the house of a man named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. And uh, Samuel says to Jesse, uh, the Lord is choosing one of your sons to be the next king. So Jesse gets seven sons together and first of all brings out the eldest. Jesse's bent was, it's most likely to be the eldest son. He's wiser He's got more life experience. If God's going to call anybody, it's likely to be him. Samuel's bent was slightly different. Because when Samuel started to see these sons, he looked at the first one and said, well, he's handsome. He's king-like. He looks like he could be the warrior king that we are looking for. Jesse's bent was age. Samuel's bent was appearance. How do you judge people? What's important? Is it, is it because they do a job like yours or they live a kind of life like you or they're in the same economic bracket as you might be or they speak with the same accent as you do? I don't speak with an accent, I hear you say. That's quite right, you don't. Everybody else speaks with an accent except you and me. What is it that we use to make those judgments? Or more importantly for today... What was it that God looked at when he saw David and he called him into this most opportune moment in the story? Well, we read of it there that uh, uh, as as the first one comes forward and uh, Samuel thinks, well, this could be the one, and God whispers in his ear, no, that's not the one. And before you go any further, God says to Samuel, Before you make a right fool of yourself, going through all these sons, looking at their age or how good they look or whatever it might be, remember this, that the Lord doesn't look at any of those things, but he looks at the heart. It's a matter of the heart. What did God see in David's heart that made him the man for that moment? What did God see in David's heart 
that meant that God could use him to extend his kingdom like he had been unable to do through anybody else thus far. What did God see? I just want to suggest two things that God saw. Firstly, God saw he was a a worshipper. A worshipper. If you open up your Bibles in the middle, or slightly left of center, you'll get to the book of... And there are 150 Psalms, and David wrote... Most of them? Half of them, actually. 70-odd. David wrote half of them. So half of the Old Testament songbook was written by David, the worshipper of the day. And when this, as the story unfolds, the very first time we are introduced to uh, David, he's called to the palace to look after Saul, who's getting himself into a right pickle. And this is how David is described. One of the servants answered, and they're trying to find someone that's going to calm Saul down. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. And the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. And so they brought David into the court of Saul in order that Saul might play the harp. But the purpose of playing the harp was in order to calm the spirits Because David was the worshipper who would usher in the presence of God. And as we look at the Psalms, just and we'll do this in more detail in a few weeks' time, but but just a cursory glance, if you've read just a few of the Psalms, you will know how real and uh, truthful and, yes, intimate the Psalms of David are. I love you, Lord. What was it that God saw as he looked into David's heart? What God saw was a worshipping spirit who from a, a young age had learned what it was to be in God's presence, who had understood what relationship with God was all about, who knew that he was part of the covenant In fact, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and he realized the dreadful mistake that he'd made and all the troubles that ensued following uh, uh, that episode that's years later from where we are now, he cries out to God for forgiveness and he says one thing, which is very telling. He says, whatever you do, don't cast me away from your presence. He was a man who knew that everything in life comes from the presence of God. He'd learnt it from a young age and so written the psalm that will be sung countless times this week at funerals and gravesides. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. And it goes on to talk about a relationship of walking with God beside still waters and God restoring our soul and we know those words well. Here is a worshipper, a worshipper. But that's not enough. That's just one side of the coin. That's covenant relationship. What about kingdom 
and responsibility. Well, did you notice in those verses uh, that we had just a moment ago when David is first introduced to us, when he's first described, he's described there in a couple of lines down, the third line from the bottom, as a warrior. He, He was still a boy almost. And yet they could see in him, here was someone who knew what it was to be a warrior. A worshiper of God. Could it be that he would be a warrior for God? So he was a worshiper, but also a warrior. And to be effective for God, you need both. You need both covenant and kingdom. You need both relationship and responsibility. And in a moment, we're just going to see that worked out in, in, in the story of David and Goliath. But I just want you to think about this for a minute, the dynamic of it. Because we typically go to poles. Okay? We, we typically find ourselves at either end. Someone will say, and we understand what they mean, someone will say, I'm a, I'm a practical Christian. I don't faff around all that stuff. I get on with it and I show people by the way that I live that I love God and the difference that it makes. Other people say, well, I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Is there another kind? I'm a spirit-filled Christian. Is there another kind? Not so sure about that, are you? And, and we operate on these extremes if we're not careful. So you get the people who go, well, I'm in church on a Sunday and I never miss the prayer meeting and I, I um, go to my small group and if you say to that person, what do you do for God? Well, I'm always there on a Sunday and I'm always at the prayer meeting. No, 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 what do you do for God? Oh, I'm always at the prayer meeting. No, no, what do you do for God? No, no, I'm always at the Bible study. Well, no, 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 what do you do for God? And then over here, these people are going, well, well, I- I'm doing this for God. And I say, well, how close is he? Oh, well, I... I don't pray very much. It's a long time since I knew his presence. And so I'd rather get on with doing this because at least I can do something over here. And and you're recognizing yourself in in one or other of those, many of you. Just say yes because it'll make me feel better even if you're not, yeah? Thank (laughs) thank you. (laughs) That was funny. Does he mean it? No, no. Uh, and we, we tend to operate at the ends. Churches operate at the ends, don't they? You've got a churches that are out there and they're, they're doing the soup kitchens and they're out meeting the uh, needs of the homeless and, and, and so on, and, and fantastic outreach. And God is hardly mentioned. And then you get these churches that are so mentioning God and faffing about with their God stuff, the homeless are still without a home. And the people who went to the soup kitchen find there's no soup there. And and those people over there go, well, you're no good because you're all about heaven. The people over there say, you're no good because you're all about earth. And in David, the two came together in a very unique way. God's looking for a church when the two come together. That we might rescue people in the fullness of that. That we might not do things for God as an excuse for not knowing him very well. And we might not seek to know a lot of him or about him as an excuse for doing diddly squat either. 
And it's that coming together that is so important and why the reign of David became so crucial. And I want you to see uh, uh, how in uh, 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 this story that unfolds, the the two things come together. So uh, let's turn to to 1 Samuel 17, which is just the next next page over if you've been following it in uh, your Bibles. most famous story, I guess, of uh, uh, David's reign. Before he was king, just a boy, and he goes out to uh, see his brothers, and he ends up taking on Goliath, the part of which Claire read to us earlier on. I want you to see the significance of this story as it becomes a gateway for the huge extension of God's kingdom that was about to take place. So nothing in God's word is by chance. Would you agree with me? And no story just happens to be there. So why is this story here as a a gateway into this new era that King David was ushering in? Well, there were giants in that land. And there are plenty of giants in our land too. Wouldn't you agree? The giants of secularism. The giants of unbelief. Giants of existentialism, giants of pornography, giants of greed, of selfishness, of morality, of despair, of hopelessness. There are giants in our land. Giants that stand opposed to God's kingdom. Giants that bring God dishonor. Giants that defy his very purposes. And so there was in that day a champion named Goliath who was from Gath, who came out and said, let's not all fight, you pick a man, I'm the man, let's have a fight, whoever wins, that whole team wins. Fair enough, just like the playground. But there was much more than that. Remember the culture, remember the context. When Israel went into the land, they were told not to take any spoils of war. What were they to do with them? Sorry? Sometimes they were told to destroy them. Other times they were told to bring them into the temple or to the temple of meeting. Why? Why was that important? Why couldn't they keep the spoils of war? Because it's God's victory. That's absolutely the point. You cannot take credit for this because this is God's victory. A few chapters back in Samuel, when the Philistines pinched the Ark of the Covenant, have you read that story? Where did they take the Ark of the Covenant? They took it straight to one place. Where did they take it? They took it to the temple of their god. Their god was called Dagon. He was half man and half fish. So he was man from the waist up uh, and fish from the bottom, a kind of fishy tail, wouldn't you agree? but but I'm hoping we'll get the scale of the problem as we think about it this morning. So they took their spoil of war into their temple to acknowledge that who had won the victory for them? Their God. So when Goliath challenges a man from Saul's army, from the Israelites, it's not just the Philistines 
challenging the Israelites. This is about, is our God bigger than your God? This is a battle of the gods. This is a clash, quite literally, of the kingdoms. This is about whose God reigns. This is about who's in charge. And suddenly you're right into our current context. This is a battle about whose kingdom this world really is. So in in a very small microcosm, in this very tiny moment of time, it speaks for something that's going on through the whole of time. You've got your man, we've got our man, but it's not about the men. It's not about the armies. It's not about the groups of faith. It's about the gods. So Paul would say, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the Goliath. Don't be fooled. It's not about Goliath, but it is about the gods behind the giants in the land. And like us so often in the face of the giants in the land, the people of Saul's day were dismayed and terrified. And so they would gather together and sing Kendrick songs in a bid to be relevant. And they they would keep doing all their religious stuff because it helped them feel not as terrified as they might otherwise have been. And they were clueless what to do, so they just kept doing the same thing day after day. And suddenly you see why it speaks into our context. And all the time, verse 25, all the time the giants get bigger or come closer. The NRSV translates this verse much better than the NIV. The idea of Goliath was day by day coming down the valley on one side, uh, and, and each day he was building more confidence, and he was beginning to come up the valley on the other side, nearer to the Israelite camp. Isn't that our story? Whilst we've just done our stuff, slightly terrified and dismayed, the giants have got bigger in the land, don't you think? When people who are seeking to adopt or foster can't do that because they simply want to say that we believe God's best for sexual relationships is in a heterosexual marriage, the giants have come a bit closer, don't you think? When in our workplace we're so unsure about how to say anything about our faith, knowing that we're not given, or it simply doesn't feel like we're given equal validity to people of other faiths, the giants have come a little closer, don't you think? And we could illustrate that in a in a plethora of ways. The giants are coming closer. They're bigger, they're more intimidating, they're more threatening. And that's the trouble. So why? Why was David, the young lad, able to do something about it? Why was he able to be the warrior when a whole army full of warriors were totally ineffective at dealing with the issue. What will it take for us to be the warriors that we need to be to slay the giants in our land so that the kingdom of God, the rule of his presence, might be extended once more instead of holding on to each other in total panic and lamenting how terrible the world is outside? Because I'm like Saul's army a lot, aren't you? If I stay in my tent, I can pretend he's not there. But the trouble was, every morning he would boom with his big voice. 
was going to say fee, fi, fo, thumb, but that's another story altogether, isn't it? Uh, and so there's this huge, to lock ourselves away. And David comes along with this totally revolutionary and fresh idea. What was it about David? This is the big moment. If you're writing notes, this is it. Okay? You missed this bit, lost the whole thing. Okay? You ready? David became a warrior because he was a worshipper. That's why... Because he was the, because he knew relationship, because he knew covenant, he knew that out of that relationship and out of that covenant, he could take responsibility in God's world, because in the end, this world was God's. He knew the earth was the Lord's and everything in it. And if he didn't write that psalm, I bet he wished he had. Because he knew it in his being. And so because he knew relationship, because he knew he was in covenant, he knew that he could take responsibility out of that relationship and make a difference in the way none of the other warriors were able to do. And so that's what he did. And out of his sense of worship, he carried, I think, three things. You see, being a worshipper gave him conviction. Because it was God that filled his gaze, it gave him conviction. Because every day he was committed above all else to God's honour, it gave him conviction. So he says straight away, how dare that man do what? Intimidate us? How dare that man threaten us? How dare that man take away our security? And look what he's doing, our children are panicking. No, no, no. David says, how dare that man do what? Defile the name, the honour of the living God. He was passionate for God's honour. He said, I, I cannot live in a land like this where everybody abuses the name of God and we all sit by. I'm going to do something about that even if nobody else will. Because central to his being was that he was in relationship with God, in covenant with God. And because of that, God alone took all the glory and all the honour. And it riled him. He was angry about it. How dare that uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God? How dare he? Second thing the worshipping uh, spirit gave him was, I think, clarity. Clarity. This is one of the Psalms that David wrote about how every part of you needs to be full with the presence of God. Every part of you needs to be focused on God and who he is and what a difference that makes. And so ask the question, as David looks across the valley and he sees the Philistine army and he sees Goliath coming up, who does David really see? God. David opens his mouth four times in the chapter. Every time he talks about God. Saul and the armies of Israel open their mouths lots of times. Every time they talk about, they talk about how big Goliath is. Have you ever been like that? Do you ever talk about how big your giants are? We make our giants look big and God looks small. But as a worshipper, 
as he knew that this, this God was the God that would protect him against the bear and the lion. This God was the God who made everything. And if he's in relationship with this God, if he's in covenant with him, as he steps out in the name of that God, I come to you not with sticks and stones and swords and helmets. I come to you, David will say, in the name of God. It's dead simple. Out of relationship, I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to bring you down. That's what many young boys want to say. I'm going to take you down. And so comes the clarity. And thirdly, so comes the confidence from this worshipper. Confident because the battle is the Lord's. It wasn't David's to fight. And he knew enough about God that God tends to win his battles. Have you ever beaten God? Have you ever won? The Lord wins his battles. But more than that, I love the phrase that uh, David uses. He, he goes, you un." circumcised Philistine. That's quite personal, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? You know, you're out in battle and you start mentioning those kinds of things. What's David's point? It's about covenant. It's about covenant. This is what David is saying. Remember that covenant was about two Ps. Anyone remember? Good. Protection and provision. Okay? Two Ps, the covenant. That's what God gave to Abraham. Protection and provision. I will protect you and I'll provide for you. David, first time he sees Goliath, he doesn't say, oh my goodness, you're nine feet tall and I'm only five foot three. I'm five foot four, actually, before you start thinking anything like that. So he doesn't say, you're really big. He doesn't say, you've got a massive brass helmet. We've never seen helmets like that anywhere in Israel. And look at your sword. It's a heavier sword than anybody's ever had. And your shield is so bespoke. Goliath, you're amazing. Basically, David says, Goliath, you're unprotected, mate. You're almost naked. You can dress up in all that stuff, but you're un." You're out of the covenant. You're not in, mate. And to show you, I'll put a stone right between your eyes. And he fell to the ground. And that was it. David went home. Having taken responsibility. Because he understood relationship. There's a difficult twist. You okay for a difficult twist? gets just a little bit deeper. What we've been saying is that David was able to be the warrior God wanted him to be because he'd learned what it was to be a worshipper. We need to understand that the army of Israel, led by Saul, had done what? Had they taken their sacrifices to the temple or to the tent of meeting? Yes. Yes, they did that. Had they celebrated the Passover? Yes, no reason to suspect that they hadn't. Had they celebrated the feasts that are there in Leviticus, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, uh, and all of, Yes. The army were good, worshipping people. Which takes us right back to where we started. When God says, what you need to understand about this story is that I look at the I look at the heart. I look at the heart. And suddenly for me I feel the sting of the story. 
Because I like to think that I'm a good worshipping kind of person. I even sit in the same chair every week. I'm that good. And God says, no, no, no. I look at the heart. You can do all the outward appearance of being a worshipper, but the true test of your worship is the kind of warrior you're becoming. Gulp. God says, I look on the inside. I look what's going on in the heart. Because it was out of David's heart that he became the warrior for God. So I ask you about your worship. But if you'll understand, it's got nothing to do with church. I'm asking you about your worship. Not about the things that we might do that are part of our worship. I'm asking you about your worship. Because he was a worshipper that became a warrior. And I find myself in the story all too often identifying with the army of Israel. I find it much easier to see parallels between the armies of Israel and the church, broadly speaking, of today. And yet this young worshipper became the warrior and pushed back the kingdom of darkness like they'd never known in their history. Because at the end of the day, it's about covenant and kingdom. It's about relationship and responsibility. It's about being called to be with him and then sent out. And the giants are still in the land. And the giants are coming closer. The giants so often are up our side of the mountain. Worship, warrior. Know him, live for him. Relationship, responsibility. Covenant kingdom. That's the kind of people God calls us to be, wouldn't you agree? And we cannot do one without the other. And whenever we try, we're like the army of Israel going, we don't know what to do, so let's just do the same old thing. Let's meet together and take up an offering. That's worked. Let's do that again. They didn't know what to do, terrified and dismayed. And this young worshipper pops up and in a most unlikely way becomes the warrior. Let's pray. Claire.